Do you ever take time to stop and just look up? To look up at the sky and, and really consider what it is that you see? Well, I grew up in a home where faith was non-existent. But as I moved into my teenage years, I started getting curious about God, and my curiosity started when I looked up. In my adolescent and teen years, I often wanted time alone. Sometimes I wanted to get away from my parents. You know what that's like. And I would go out in the yard, and I'd lay on my back, and I'd look up at the sky. And I would ponder the vastness of all I could see. And the more that I looked, the more insignificant I felt. And I just was reminded that we live in this incredibly vast universe. And from my science classes at school, I was being taught that that we can't fully understand our universe and we can't fully explain it, that it's bigger than we are. And yet, my science classes also were telling me that everything I could see, including my own existence, was a cosmic accident. And I I sat there and looked up. That explanation made zero sense to me. How could all of that have been random? Surely, there must have been some kind of creator So observing the night sky was one of many factors that the Holy Spirit used to prod me to start searching for God. And when I got my driving license and was allowed a little bit of independence from my parents, I started all on my own, getting up early on Sunday morning and driving around and visiting churches and other religious gatherings. And my parents thought I was nuts. But for me, this was a very serious search. Here were all of these religious groups, and they claimed to be in touch with God. And I wanted to find out what they had to say and what they claimed that God had to say. After a lengthy search, one Sunday morning, I found myself in a church that was teaching from the Bible. And I realized that I had discovered some people who actually were in touch with God. Because of all the various claims that I'd heard about God over many, many weeks, the Bible made the most sense. Now, I certainly didn't understand it all. But what I did understand made sense. And I realized that that there was a creator and that this creator had chosen not to remain distant and anonymous from his world. He had communicated with his creation, and he'd revealed himself through the Scriptures. And as I pondered all this, I started to pray. And at age 17, I made the decision to become a follower of Jesus, and I became a student of the Bible. And as I've read this book for so many years. Every time I open the pages of Scripture and read the Bible, I'm reminded of something that is absolutely foundational to the life of faith. I'm reminded that our God is great. 
we have the privilege of knowing an awesome and mighty God who always is working out His purposes in our world. And I need that reminder to keep my life in proper perspective. Otherwise, instead of following the leading of the Holy Spirit who keeps me in step with Jesus, I can start to act as if I'm in control. And when that happens, that I'm acting as if I'm greater than the God who made me and who gave me His word of truth. And acting as if I'm greater than God is not a healthy way to live. Just think about the consequences for Adam and Eve. Think about what took place at the Tower of Babel. Consider what happened to the prophet Jonah. The story of history is that human beings keep making the same mistake. We continually underestimate God and we keep wrestling with Him for control and the results usually aren't very pretty. And so the authors of Scripture show us a better way. We need to remember that God is great and the best way to live is to humble ourselves and follow Him faithfully. And that's why the Bible continually celebrates the greatness of God. And this comes through in a very powerful and vivid way in Psalm 19, written by King David of Israel. And as we're going to see in a moment, David in this psalm highlights two distinct ways in which God reveals his greatness. And first and most importantly, God is great because he is the creator. He created the universe in an amazing display of His greatness. Let's take a look. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat." This psalm begins with an ascription or dedication which tells us that, that after David wrote these words, he took the psalm and he presented it to the choir director in the temple because he wanted God's people to use this as a worship song. This happens several times in the psalms and I find myself wishing that we knew the original tunes. Sadly, they've been lost to history. But words like these are so rich and I think it would be awesome for us to be able to sing them to God in the same way that they were sung by our spiritual ancestors. Yet even though we don't sing these words, oh, do they speak of the majesty and greatness of God. 
And in these opening verses, we learn that when David looks up at the sky day or night, he sees more than the stars and the planets and the sun. He sees the handiwork of our Creator. What do you see when you look up? Do you just see the beauty of nature? Or do you see what these objects represent? As David said, they represent God's glory. And we know that the physical elements don't literally speak, but David poetically states here that the very existence of these celestial objects is a loud, bold proclamation of the acts of a great and mighty God. Oh, they are speaking to those who will listen. When you and I take time to look up and to ponder, it's clear that God's fingerprints are all over His creation. Even the sun is subject to God. And David makes special mention of this because in many ancient cultures, the sun was revered as a God. And David wants the world to know that the sun, as powerful as it is, is a created object. And it lights the world and it warms the world at the pleasure of the one true God. Our God is great because He is the Creator. And the elements of His creation declare His glory for those who are willing to look and to see and to listen. And here's what's really cool. Because of modern science, we actually can understand the greatness of God in ways that were beyond David's comprehension. For example, he recognizes the power of the sun, but we know that we live in a universe where light from the sun travels at 186,000 miles per second. Now, is that awesome or what? We know that when we use the, the most powerful telescopes and things that we can use to see out in the universe, the farthest objects we can see in space are more than 13 billion light years away. Wow! What a vast universe God has made. And we are privileged to know so much about it, and yet there's still much we don't know. To a great extent, we're in the dark about what lies beyond our solar system, and that's because the universe is bigger than our ability to ever fully comprehend. And so its existence is a loud proclamation that it was created by the God who is greater than we are. Yet as we know, there are people who want to explain away God's act of creation. After all, if the universe celebrated here in, in Psalm 19 actually just happened by chance, then there is no God. And if there is no God, then I can be my own God. And then I can define for myself what is good or bad or meaningful. If there's no God, then ultimately I'm accountable only to myself and to my own self-determined values. And in pursuit of that goal of eliminating any consideration of a creator, many people turn to science, <laughs> believing that modern science undercuts the belief in God as our creator. But you know what? The opposite actually is true. 
the objective scientific evidence available today offers more compelling reasons than ever before to believe in the God of the Bible. Some of you may know of Dr. Hugh Ross. He's an astrophysicist, he's a follower of Jesus, and he runs an organization called Reasons to Believe. Among other things, Dr. Ross has chronicled some of the unique physical variables that must be finely tuned for human life to exist in our universe and on the planet Earth. And here's just one example that Dr. Ross highlights in one of his books. Now you may remember from our science classes in school that electrons and protons are tiny elements that help form the basis of life. Here's something you may not know. Scientists have determined that for human life to form and to be maintained, the number of electrons and protons in existence must be almost exactly matched and the margin for error is excruciatingly small. The number of electrons cannot differ from the number of protons by more than 1 in 10 to the 37th power. That's the number 1 followed by 37 zeros. Here's what it looks like. <laughs> That's a big number. That's bigger than a thousand or a million or a billion or a trillion. Now, now, I don't gamble, but I know that if you go to the horse races and if you place a bet on a horse with 20 to 1 odds, you're probably going to lose because that's considered a long shot. And 20 to 1 doesn't even come close to that. And that is what is required in our universe for protons and electrons to be exactly in balance. And those odds are so long that they're almost impossible to understand. However, Dr. Ross offers a great illustration for us to picture just how hard it would be for these kinds of odds to happen by chance. Here's what he says. We take a little dime, then a little dime. We lay it down. And we stack another dime on top of it, and another dime, and another dime, and another dime. And we stack those dimes until they reach the moon. The moon, on average, it's not a perfect orbit, the moon, on average, is 240,000 miles away, I believe. So just think about how many dimes we would need to stack to reach the moon. I don't even want to try to calculate that number. I think my head would explode. So we build this stack of dimes and we don't stop there. We put another stack right next to it and another one and another one. And we stack dimes from Earth to the moon until all of the United States is covered. How many billions of piles of dimes would that be? I can't even begin to guess. But we don't stop there. We keep stacking dimes until Mexico's covered. We keep stacking dimes until Canada's covered. And then we go out and we find one billion other continents the size of North America and we cover all them with dimes. Now obviously we're beyond physical reality because there aren't a billion continents on our planet the size of North America, but that's what we would need to do. We need to stack all of these dimes up all over the place, okay? Now, what we do next is where it gets really interesting. We've finished all these piles and we take one more dime and we paint it bright red and we hide it somewhere in the midst of those gazillion piles of dimes. And then we go to our friend, and we go, hey, Robin, come over here. <laughs> Not literally. Robin, I want you to find that one red dime that's hidden in those piles. 
you only get one chance. And you have to do it blindfolded. What are the odds that Robin could walk around a billion and one continents among gazillions of piles of dimes and pull out the one red dime on the first try blindfolded? What are the odds? One in 10 to the 37th power. Incredible, incredible odds. That's the kind of accuracy and precision that's needed to keep electrons and protons in balance so that we can be here this morning. So that we even can exist. Now, do you know anyone who could create anything to that level of accuracy? I don't. I don't think all the tech wizards in Silicon Valley could do it. I don't think all the brilliant men and women at Caltech and MIT could do it. It's the work of an all-powerful creator. Now, even with those astronomical odds, some people claim that this precise balance between electrons and protons is just a lucky break that happened by chance. Well, if you believe that, then guess what? There are more than 100 other variables that also must be precisely fine-tuned to that same kind of level of exactness for human life to exist. And these variables cover an incredible array of things like the speed of light and the stability of the water cycle and the molecular weight of hydrogen and many, many more things. And all of these factors provide compelling evidence that we live in a world that has been exquisitely and precisely designed for human life. Our universe, our planet, has been handcrafted for us by a great and powerful God. Oh, he is so much greater than we are. And unfortunately, despite su such compelling evidence, there's always those who resist. We humans are so arrogant that we keep trying to pretend that we're equal to God and we fight him for control. There, there, there's, there's a silly old joke about, about a scientist who's arguing with God and this scientist goes to God and says, oh God, you claim that only you can create life. Well, guess what? With just a little bit of dirt, I can take that dirt into the laboratory and I can create life. And God says, okay, show me. So the scientist bends over, picks up a scoop of dirt, starts to walk away, and God says, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Get your own dirt, that's mine. <laughs> you see, when we human beings create, we always have to start with something that already exists. Not God. Not God. All of creation, including the dirt, owes its existence to Almighty God who created it from nothing. He simply spoke it into existence with words like these, let there be light. And there was light. Oh, if you are not in awe of God, then take some time to look up and ponder the vastness of his creation. Let yourself be overwhelmed with just how great our God is. 
And yet there's more. Because consider this, what would life be like if we only could know God through his creation? We'd marvel at him, but we wouldn't have any personal connection with him. There'd be no way to get to know this great God. And so as King David continues the psalm, he wants us to understand the greatness of God from another perspective. And what he wants to see is this, our God is so great that he chose to bridge the gap between us. So God did not just speak the creation into existence. He spoke to human beings and through human beings. And he gave us the scriptures. He gave us his word so we could know him. And he gave us his word to help bring order and purpose to our lives He gave us his word to give us healthy boundaries so we would not be slaves to our worst impulses. And through this timeless book of truth that we call the Bible, God shows us how we, as his creatures, can live up to our highest potential. Look what David says next about the greatness of God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect, perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And that's a really unusual phrase. And that word clean has a lot of nuances to it. It means pure. It means unencumbered. It's talking about a certain kind of fear of the Lord. Not, ah, God's going to get me. (laughs) It's talking about a reverential, holy fear. The kind of fear that is so pure and clean that we can come into the presence of our great God and awesomely worship him and reverence him. That kind of fear of the Lord is very, very clean. It's unencumbered. Okay? It's not human fear. It's reverential fear of God. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, David here uses a lot of different words for Scripture, laws and precepts and commandments and rules, but those are all just different ways about talking about the Word of God. And what's so awesome about God's Word is it enables us as created beings to know our Creator personally. And in particular, David wants us to understand that through through the Bible, we can see and understand the, the, the purity and perfection of God. And that's huge because clearly then he's perfect and we know we're not. And yet through his laws and precepts, God works with us in our imperfections. And so the Bible spells out God's expectations for us and offers the wisdom we need to live useful and productive and meaningful lives. God's Word offers guidance so we can live as men and women who are good and godly and morally pure. And so David concludes that God's truth is sweet. 
It's sweet and desirable. Because when we follow God's truth, it leads us to become all that our Creator wants us to be. God's Word is a great gift of love from a great God. But you know what's sad? Some people really don't want to hear from God because they want to be their own gods. And so just as there are some people who deny the truth that God is a creator, some people try to deny the truth that God has revealed to his creation through the Bible. And there's countless examples of this. You may even know somebody who believes that. But here's one very famous example. It's a man you've heard of, Thomas Jefferson, the primary author of our Declaration of Independence, a document for which as a nation we can be very grateful, but from a spiritual standpoint, Jefferson, well, he left something to be desired because he viewed himself as a practical man and a realist and he did not believe in the spiritual supernatural world. And in his day, all educated people were instructed in the Bible. So he had read the scriptures, but he did not find God's truth to be sweet and desirable. And in reading the New Testament, he found the biographies of Jesus to be especially troubling. How could Jesus heal people? How could he, how could he free people from demonic affliction? How could he raise people from the dead? In his view, those kinds of things were myth. Things like that just don't happen. That was Jefferson's view. Well, since God's truth did not match up with Jefferson's opinions, he decided to eliminate the problem. In February of 1804, Thomas Jefferson spent a few nights cutting apart the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he removed some parts and he rearranged others and then he pasted them back together in his preferred order. And he left out all of the miracles, including the resurrection. You know what was left? Only those parts of Jesus' moral teaching that Jefferson liked. And that work of creative editing survives today. And it's called the Jefferson Bible. And that's an appropriate name because it's Jefferson's opinions. It's Jefferson's preferences. Do you see what he was doing? He was trying to define what is and is not true in God's word based on his own personal standards. And any time human beings do that, we are acting as if we are greater than the God who created us and the God who breathed the scriptures into existence for us. Now most of us wouldn't take the time and effort to physically cut and paste the Bible that Je in the way Jefferson did. But let's be honest. Some of us at times treat the Bible the same way he did. We accept and follow the parts that we like and we ignore or try to explain away the parts we don't like. But since our Creator has, has reached out to us and has spoken to us through His Word, then we need to strive to embrace all of the Scriptures, the parts that make sense to us and the parts that we struggle to understand. 
We need to embrace those parts that make us feel comfortable. And we need to embrace those parts that make us squirm. You see, we can't, we can't toss aside what the Bible says about dishonesty just because we might like to cheat on our taxes. We can't overlook what the Bible says about gossip and dissension just because we really enjoy talking about other people behind their back. We can't cut out what the Bible says about pride just because we love to impress other people with how awesome we are. We need to try to receive and embrace and follow all of God's truth. His word has been given to us by, and he is such a great and awesome God. He's created us and he's so much greater than we are and we're really not in a position to second guess what he said to us even though we keep trying to do that. And so I love King David's attitude here. It's the right one and it's one we need to adopt because he clearly loves God's word. It's sweet. It's desirable. We need to try to follow it. And because our Creator loves us and He's given us His Word to guide us, the best thing we can do is humbly surrender to this God who is so much greater than we are. And that's how King David concludes this psalm. Moreover, by them, he's speaking about the Scriptures, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? He's talking about his own errors. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David knows himself well enough to know that his tendency is, is to act in ways that are contrary to the best that God offers. And the same is true for us. Left to our own devices, we often will make bad decisions and engage in foolish behavior. And on our own, there's times when we might not even know the difference between right and wrong. We need God to teach us that. On our own, we, we may find it difficult to honestly assess our own lives and to fully understand all the ways in which we mess up. And so David here addresses the problem of human sin, and he comes at it from two different angles. He talks about presumptuous sins, and those are actions that we know are wrong, and yet we do them anyway. And we know what that's like, don't we? And the second thing David talks about is what he calls hidden faults. Because sadly, sometimes our sinful behavior is so normal to us that we're oblivious to it. For example, think about a person who so habitually shades the truth to get out of trouble that he or she may not actually realize what they're doing. We all can have hidden faults. And because of our sinful nature, we need the Word of God to permeate our minds and our hearts. And when we soak in God's truth, then He can make us aware of our hidden faults and He can convict us of our presumptuous sins. 
And as you and I willingly lay aside our sinfulness and receive God's forgiveness and align ourselves with God's truth, then we can live in a way that is rich and rewarding and pleasing to our Creator. And what we see here at the end of this psalm is this cry from David's heart. More than anything, he wants to honor his Creator, so he willingly surrenders to, to his great God. And what is so awesome is that David does not have to cower in fear as if this great God is just waiting to crush him and judge him. David knows this God as his rock and redeemer because this great God who made him is the God who also forgives him when David acknowledges his faults. This means that David, even though he is a flawed, imperfect human being, oh, he is safe and secure in God's presence. And we can be too when we follow his example. So how might we respond to this psalm that proclaims the greatness of God? I'd like to suggest three things that you and I can do. First, let's on a regular basis take some time to stop and look up. To look up at the sun and the moon and the stars and to see the glory of God. Let's let ourselves feel some awe at God's graceness and the grandeur of His vast creation. And second, let's be thankful that God did not set this world in motion and then disappear. He did not choose to remain aloof and unknowable. And He spoke His word into existence so we could know Him personally. So I want to encourage you, don't take the Bible for granted. Let's invest time to read it and ponder it and meditate over it and pray over it so that God's truth seeps into us and helps form our character. And then we can live our lives to the fullest and experience the best that our Creator has for us because we will understand His expectations and His wisdom for life will guide the things that we do. And then third, just like David, let's be willing to humbly surrender to our great God. Let's stop pretending that we're in control. Let's stop fighting Him for control. And let's acknowledge that we are imperfect people who need His forgiveness. And let's ask Him to set us free from both presumptuous sins and hidden sins. And when we ask, He can forgive us. He has the power to do that because He's a great and mighty God. But even with all of His greatness, He is not aloof from us. We can never forget that our God loves us. And He loves to forgive us. And He loves it when we draw near to Him. And the reason He loves that is because He is our rock and our Redeemer. And that is very great news and a very great promise from our very great God. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, our, our culture in so many ways encourages us to believe that we are great, to believe that we're in control. And this psalm reminds us that you are great because you are the creator. And you breathed into us the gift of life and you made this universe such a beautiful and exquisite place for us to live. And Father, because, because you wanted to know us, you wanted us to know you, you, you gave us your word, you breathed that into existence and so we're grateful for the truth that you reveal. And we're grateful that you walk with us in our imperfections. Thank you for being a forgiving God. Thank you for being our rock and our redeemer. And we acknowledge you as a great and gracious God. And we give you our praise and our thanks. And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.